Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. One thing before we start the show. I want to let you know about a special interview you'll hear at the end of this episode. It's with the host of a brand new podcast called Art Architects, the architects of art. The cool thing is this show is hosted by Director X and Taj Critchlow, two of the biggest music video directors on the planet. These guys are responsible for game-changing videos from artists like Drake and Coldplay and Kendrick Lamar and so many more. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. I sure did. That's coming up at the end of this episode. All right, let's get on with things. For the longest time, the sounds of rock were made with voice, guitars, bass, drums, and keyboards like piano and organ. There were plenty of ways to manipulate the sounds of those instruments. You know, effects pedals, studio tricks, happy accidents that happened when you least expected them. And for a couple of decades, that was plenty to work with. We discovered all sorts of techniques to create sounds that no one had ever heard before. But when engineers started messing with electricity in new ways, it became possible for musicians to create sounds that not only we'd never heard before, but never imagined hearing. This resulted in an explosion of new, amazing music that was based mostly, if not entirely, on electronic sounds. Experimentation really got underway in the 1960s. These sounds worked their way into prog rock in the 1970s. And at the very end of that decade, the technology had become cheap enough for young musicians in the last months of the original punk rock scene to adopt these music-making machines as their own. I'm talking about synthesizers, of course. And as bands in sharp suits and skinny ties released spiky new wave pop songs, another group of musicians went all in with synths. And in the post-punk era, which is to say the late 70s and early 80s, we had the era of technopop. Here's how that happened. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Depeche Mode and their third single, Just Can't Get Enough. That was released in September 1981 and is perfectly representative of the sound that became known as Technopop. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and this is part two of our look at some of the genres that emerged in the years following the punk rock of the 1970s. Now, to reiterate, post-punk is the blanket term given to all the new music made possible by punk. It did not sound like punk, but it couldn't have happened unless punk did first. On part one, we talked about the rise of New Wave. Now, the New Wave era extended roughly from 1978 through to about 1984, and we can divide that span into two periods. The first featured the jerky, twitchy, fun sort of power pop that could get a little goofy from time to time. That's your standard New Wave. It was based largely on guitars, bass, and drums. Now we're going to talk about the synthesizer-driven second half of the New Wave era. And we're going to use the term technopop, although some people prefer calling it synthpop or electropop. It began emerging in earnest in about 1979. This, in a nutshell, was post-punk music where electronic keyboards and related gear, like drum machines, were the dominant instruments. Real guitars and real drums weren't really in the mix. Practitioners were all about the new possibilities that these instruments presented. Now, before we dive into everything, a little extra history is required. Work on what would become the modern synthesizer goes all the way back to the 1940s. With the advent of the transistor, research into making these kinds of sounds accelerated in the 1950s. But these machines were gigantic. 
Early examples filled entire rooms. One model was so big that it had to be transported on a rail car. By the 1960s, engineers like Bob Moog and Don Buchla were building much smaller units. They were temperamental and extremely hard to program, but they sure sounded cool. And unfortunately, they were also expensive. Still, groups who had the money, like the Beatles, began to experiment with them. If you listen to Here Comes the Sun from the Abbey Road album, you can hear an early synthesizer. Then, in 1972, came this. That's from Wendy Carlos, who worked with Bob Moog on his synthesizer. She created the all-synth soundtrack for Stanley Kubrick's futuristic A Clockwork Orange. Meanwhile, bands like Pink Floyd were also intrigued by the new sonic possibilities. If you go back to Dark Side of the Moon and the instrumental track On the Run, we hear a primitive synthesizer, one without a keyboard, called an EMS VCS-3. Plenty of prog rock bands dabbling in synths. Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and Yes were just two. We also had art rock types getting into these keyboards, names like Jean-Michel Jarre, Tomita, and Vangelis. But special props must go to Kraftwerk. In the 1960s, Germans, or more correctly, West Germans, were looking for a style of music that they could call their own. They didn't want to sound American, and they didn't want to sound British. Some of them threw their lot in with electronic sounds. They had names like Tangerine Dream and Amundul. But the most important turned out to be Kraftwerk. And when they started having best-selling albums and hit songs in the international charts, people really started to pay attention. This is from 1978. By the time Kraftwerk released The Model in 1978, they'd been experimenting with synthesizer technology for about five years. David Bowie was fascinated by what Kraftwerk was doing and immediately dove into synthesizers, and that got people's attention. One such person was Daniel Miller. He wanted to be a punk, but didn't know how to play guitar. So he saved up some money from his job as a film editor and bought a Korg 700S and a four-track reel-to-reel machine. He started experimenting with it in his bedroom, recorded two songs, found some money to make a test pressing, and convinced the Rough Trade record shop in Notting Hill to stock it. After it came out in November 1978, the record became a hit. It had attitude. It was minimalist. It was different. It was futuristic. 
And this thing, made by a guy in his bedroom with a few rudimentary pieces of gear and no musical experience, sold 30,000 copies. War. Leatherette. Many young wannabe musicians who'd come of age with punk were intrigued by Daniel Miller's Warm Leatherette, a song he released under the name The Normal. And this interest had its roots in punk. The emerging technopop wasn't something separate from New Wave, but part of its evolution, a subgenre, created by the same attitude as punk. As Andy McCluskey and Paul Humphreys of OMD, one of the biggest bands of the era, explained to me, one thing that a lot of people also don't realize is that there was a certain amount of uh, punk rock aesthetic when it came to yeah. you by bands like you who you had no musical ability no at no. least not well you were you were we were self-taught self, so we self-taught read music yeah. my, mo- my my mother even had a um a school reporter from my music teacher saying Paul Humphreys has absolutely no aptitude for music whatsoever. <laughs> uh, He's so, got a frame now. <laughs> but these new tools. But, uh, but these, yeah. I mean, that was it. It was the punk sensibility, you, you know, just in, instead of just thrashing one chord on a guitar, we were just playing with two fingers on synths and it was just, it's the same thing. It's a, it's the, but you were, it's coming, up with, ethic, you you were coming up with sounds that the human brain had never heard before, which was the cool thing about these new machines. That was the exciting yeah. thing about using electronics was it gave us um, access to a palette of sounds that were new and exciting uh, rather than just repeating what we saw in the mid to late 70s as, you know, just rock and roll cliches. It's like, oh, God, guitar, bass and drums, it's been done to death. Yeah. You know, there's no new way to do this. We want to try and make a different sound. Perfect example of late 70s technopop from orchestral maneuvers in the dark. They were one of the first of the new wave generation to turn to all electronic sounds. More history on the birth and rise of technopop coming up. This is part two of our exploration of the post-punk era, those years immediately following the punk rock explosion of the 1970s, which saw a blossoming of all kinds of new and interesting music. We're discussing the new wave variant known as technopop. Another milestone in the creation of Technopop came in the spring of 1979, when Gary Newman, previously a big fan of guitars, started playing with a new synthesizer someone had left in a studio. It was a mini Moog. Suddenly, the idea of recording a punk album went out the window. He thought, what if I wrote punk songs but made them electronic? And he constructed this song. It's based on a vision he had of the future, where machines come to your door to supply all manners of services. He called these machines friends. And the friend in this song is supposed to be a prostitute. Yeah, I, I, I know. You, you'll never hear this in the same way again. Gary Newman and Our Friends Electric, a massive hit single that sold over a million copies just in the UK. And note the vibe of that song. Much of early technopop was robotic, cold, deliberately artificial, emotionally sterile, and just generally a little intense. 
That description can also be applied to craft work, the normal, and some of Bowie's electronic experiments. Very Blade Runner-ish, you know? When you step back and look at that vibe, it was a slight variation of the nihilism of guitar-driven punk. And because many early techno-pop performers had limited musical skills, not unlike the punks that treasured attitude over ability, it proved easier to make this kind of music than something with more texture. Now, lyrically, early techno-pop spoke of a mixture of futurism, alienation, isolation, and, now let's face it, an all-around dystopian view of life. However, all this began to change in 1980 and 1981, when the technology advanced to allow for even more sounds, specifically dance beats. The songs became less intense, the singing more emotive, and the instrumentation and production less thin and less trebly. The sounds thickened up thanks to new polyphonic synthesizers. You could only play one note at a time on the old synths, the monophonic ones, so if you wanted to build up a chord, you needed to layer each new note on a new track on the tape machine. Not with the polyphonic machines, and an emerging new way of taming electricity into notes called FM synthesis, which was far better than the old oscillators. The young technopoppers also improved their skills as musicians, and with that came a desire to write songs with more conventional song structures. Meanwhile, producers began to have a greater grasp of what could be done in the studio. Remember what warm leatherette sounded like? Now, compare that minimalism to something like this, which came out less than two years later. The advance in sound and sonics and texture is amazing. As 1980 turned into 1981, the advances in synth technology just kept coming. They were also cheaper, they were more portable, they were easier to use. And that's where we'll pick things up in just a moment. The early 80s saw the biggest explosion in music-making technology since the arrival of the electric guitar 30 years earlier. Better and more powerful polyphonic synths, drum machines, early samplers, and perhaps most important of all, a machine-connecting language called MIDI. MIDI stands for Musical Instrument Digital Interface. It originated in an engineering paper called Universal Synthesizer Interface and became the new worldwide standard for allowing all these new electronic instruments to talk to each other. A single cable could carry 16 channels of information, meaning you could connect 16 different devices together. That meant if you, say, played a note on one unit, it triggered other events on up to 15 other devices, other keyboards, a drum machine, and so on. Now remember, just a few years earlier, you could only play one note on a synth at a time. Now playing one note could turn you into a one-person orchestra if you programmed everything right. Add in the capabilities of a professional recording studio and the universe of music opened wide. There's the Human League with a massive global hit from the winter of 1981-82, which is the period when Technopop really reached its commercial peak. They were joined by bands like Duran Duran, Soft Cell, OMD, ABC, Depeche Mode, A Flock of Seagulls, Men Without Hats, and so many others. And all of it was very accessible, and in many cases, very danceable. And because it could, synth pop started fragmenting into different sounds. 
Some were all electronic, while others retained things like a standard rhythm section. One such offshoot was known as New Romantic, which had its roots in a couple of British clubs dedicated to new music. One was called Billy's, and the other was the Blitz Club. This was the breeding site of groups like Spando Ballet, Visage, and Culture Club. Synth-based music was so popular that a backlash built. Real rock fans pushed back against technopop bands because, uh, well, they weren't really playing instruments. They were just programming machines to do the work for them. Even more alarmed were professional musicians, especially those represented by the Union in the UK. Synth music had become so big that the Union wanted laws that limited their use in order to protect the jobs of real musicians. On May 23, 1982, which just happened to be the 48th birthday of synth pioneer Bob Moog, the UK Musicians Union went public with their grievances. The last straw wasn't Kraftwerk or OMD or Duran Duran, but uh, Barry Manilow, one of the biggest mainstream artists at that time. In the past, Manilow had gone on tour with a string section, providing musicians with a solid living. But in 1981, he dumped the orchestra and toured with just a couple of synth players. That had to stop. That was the last straw. Jobs were being lost and livelihoods needed to be protected. In other words, it was another case of people fighting back against the inevitable progress brought on by technology. That May, again, this is 1981, at a meeting of the Musicians Union, a motion passed calling for a ban on all synthesizers. The whole situation did not go down well. It prompted the formation of an opposition party called the Union of Sound Synthesists. And the music press and music fans called this idea the product of a bunch of loonies. There was no stopping electronic music, of course, especially after MTV signed on. Like new wave artists, technopop practitioners had an interesting sense of style, which looked great on television, and MTV provided these performers with a platform in America. Now, as far as anyone can tell, this song was the first hit by a British technopop band to reach the top 10 of the Billboard singles chart. The song is fine, but it was MTV play of the video and singer Mike Score's swoopy haircut that really made that happen. Like I said earlier, peak Technopop was in the winter of 81-82. Not only did it get exposure on MTV, but the music spurred the growth of alternative music stations. And plenty of this music crossed over to the pop charts. Pet Shop Boys, Eurythmics, Erasure, more Depeche Mode. But as with everything in this world, things that rise must soon fall. Technopop continued to be very popular through 1983, 84, and 85. But by the middle of the decade, things were changing. First, the technology improved to the point where it became harder and harder to tell the difference between real instruments and synthesized ones. And second, not everybody was enamored by synths. A few groups fought back with new approaches to the guitar, bass, and drums lineup. It took a couple of forms. In the U.S., rock began flexing its muscles again. Think hair metal and the growing interest in Indian alternative music. And in the U.K., we had bands like the Smiths who deliberately and pointedly wanted nothing to do with what they felt was artificial, soulless music. Although the popularity of pure technopop declined through the rest of the 80s, it didn't go quietly. Depeche Mode stuck around, but with a modified sound. 
Bronsky Beat and their spin-off The Communards stood their ground. And there were other groups with plenty of technopop DNA. Camouflage, When in Rome, The Information Society, ConCan. Meanwhile, synths became so common that everybody was using them in all kinds of non-technopop applications. What was once new and futuristic had turned into the common present. And still others found ways to take what began as technopop into completely new electronic directions. On the next edition of our exploration of the post-punk era, we're going to look at one of the stratifications that could not have happened without punk, without new wave, and without technopop. It's one of the most intense, hard, and heavy forms of alternative music known to humankind. We call it industrial. Until then, catch up on things with the official Ongoing History of New Music podcast. There are hundreds available via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any of the other podcast platforms you care to mention. Here's another invitation to check out my website, which is a journalofmusicalthings.com, which is constantly being updated with new music and information. We can also connect on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and all correspondence, comments, and criticism is welcome through alan at alancross.ca. Part three of our look at the original post-punk era next time. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Before we leave today's Ongoing History of New Music podcast, uh, I want you to know that we're part of a network called Curious Cast. And Curious Cast has a lot of podcasts available on its network. And one of the new ones is called Art Architects. And I have two of the hosts of Art Architects with me here. Uh, we have Taj Krishlo and Director X. And we want to give you a bit of a, an introduction to what this new podcast is all about. So who wants to go first and explain exactly what you guys will be doing? And obviously, here's a hint. If you're at the end of this podcast, my podcast, Chance Start has something to do with music. So our show is pretty much about... It's in the world of music. It's pretty much us sitting down with uh, storytellers that come from music videos. Uh, I feel like we live in a world where we don't give these these amazing creative uh, artists uh, the flowers they deserve. They create some of the most uh, impactful uh, content on the planet that gets a lot of eyeballs on it. And coming from the world of music video, being in the business for over 20 years, we felt it was necessary to create a show like Architects, to sit down and hear their stories, their come-ups, their journey, their process of creating some of the most iconic music videos, films, and content on the planet. Now, you guys have been deeply involved in this world for, like you say, a long time. Who have you worked with? I've directed videos for Alicia Keys, Puff Daddy, Cisco, uh, uh, Destiny's Child, Drake, Justin Bieber, 2 Chains. Rosalia, Iggy Azalea, Sean Paul, Beanie Man, um, Ariana Grande. Uh, well, you know. Okay, uh, now, now now you're just bragging. Corn, <laughs> <laughs> John Mayer, the list goes on. Like we, this has literally been um, a crazy journey, and and I would say X is the goat because as long as he's been doing it. Like like late '90s to now is still relevant. You know, like we broke our our production company fella with uh, this music video for uh, for DJ Khaled, Drake, and Bieber called Popstar. 
so it's 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 been a crazy journey and um there were two kids from brampton ontario that uh went out to you know make art that broke out to the world and now we're using our podcast as another form of storytelling but through an audio uh medium okay how are you going to make that transition you've been telling stories through video now it's going to be only audio so uh you're going to have to change your style a little bit i guess i mean we're talking to the creators so it's a different kind of thing you know what i mean um the the story is the story of the maker so it's not conceptualizing music and visuals to it it's talking like the last the first podcast the debut of our of the show was with dave myers um another guy that's been in the game for a long, long time. And just talking about that, the philosophy behind his approach to art, the work he's done, and, you know, as well, digging into some of the larger world issues out there. Like we have a whole talk about Black Lives Matter uh, on that podcast and being a white director and his perspective coming up in a black music uh, world. So it's just a, it's a little different than what we're used to doing. Without any spoilers, give me the kind of stories that you'll be telling. Give me an example of a story. I guess the examples is pretty much their come up. Um, what they what gravity what what drew them in to get into this world of uh, filmmaking, um, their influences, um, their highs, their lows, and pretty much their breakthrough moment. And and a lot of times, to your point, um, Alan, like. When you watch a music video, you're just seeing the end result, but you don't see what what went into to make that product and and that that piece of art as far as the storyboards and the, the art direction and sitting down with your head department and the collaboration. So it's pretty much we're 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 giving them that kind of you know close set behind experience where you get to see the process of how uh, we get to the finish line, right? Yeah, I've I've always I've often watched music videos and wondered where the hell did this come from? What kind <laughs> of headspace do you have to be in to come up with these images, these storylines, these, you know, things. Uh, and, and I have no idea. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the point of the show. Like, look, we're probably like around the same age. Like I came up, I came up in the eighties era where that's what made me fall in love with music videos, right? The MTV much music era watching videos by like, Madonna and Peter Gabriel and like Phil Collins and, and Michael Jackson and, uh, uh, and Aerosmith. And I was always fascinated by music videos and the storytelling and the dancing and the style and all that stuff. And that's what got, that's what made us fall in love with the art. So imagine if you could go back in the days and sit down with Duran Duran and talk about the hungry, like a wolf video, like what the hell compelled you guys being this jungle and, and, and just going through this crazy, crazy story and sitting down with like the best of the best and hearing their, the stories of the directors working with Madonna and working with the stones. And that's the beauty about the show. It's like, we get that access to these filmmakers, to these artists. I've worked with the biggest and brightest artists in the entertainment business, but learn about that journey, that creative journey, that collaboration to make the work that we see that's now on television or on YouTube. And, and before we jump, I just want to say, please follow us at Architects Pods. Uh, I can't wait for this. Sounds like a great series. Looking forward to it. It's called Architects with Karina Evans, Tash Critchlow, and Director X. And uh, 
I can't wait to hear some of these stories. Thank you so much, you guys. All right.